0: Pushkin
1: you can find inspiring stories almost anywhere for instance check out the co-founders of girls who do interiors this miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school and right from the start they turned to chase for business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member
2: FDIC. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at Tmobile.com slash now.
0: Jake Halpern here. Before we get started, I wanted you to know that Deep Cover Season 2 will be dropping weekly on Mondays. But the full season is available right now, ad-free for Pushkin Plus subscribers, That's all 10 episodes right away. Find Pushkin Plus on the Deep Cover show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm.
3: Previously on Deep Cover.
0: By the mid-1970s, Bob Cooley had earned a reputation in Chicago as a flashy criminal defense lawyer who knew how to win. Sometimes he won fair and square. But he was also willing to place a bribe to get the verdict he wanted. In 1977, Bob was approached by Pat Marcy, the mob's political czar. Marcy asked him to fix a murder case, something that Bob had never done before. And this wasn't just any murder case. It was the trial of a mob hitman named Harry Alaman.
4: He's like a bantam rooster. Looks like somebody who, if you rubbed up against him, you'd sort of bleed because he's the razor's edge.
0: Bob knew that he needed to get this case into the hands of the exact right judge. And, according to Bob, he had the perfect person in mind. Bob Cooley was a guy who seemed to know everyone. When he wasn't in court, Bob liked to eat out, party, and gamble. Sometimes he mixed work with pleasure. He was an off-the-book, silent partner of an Italian restaurant, a place called Greco's, where he schmoozed with lawyers, judges, and clients. And sometimes, he took the guys he really liked to Vegas. Bob gambled so much, the casinos would often fly him and his friends out on a charter plane. Bob says he made one such trip in the mid-70s with a judge named Frank Wilson. I should tell you, Judge Wilson is no longer alive, so I couldn't ask him about this trip or get his side of things. But according to Bob, he and the judge get out to Vegas, gamble, have a good time, part ways at some point, and then, in the wee hours of the morning, they reconnect.
5: He's sitting at the bar and there's a girl sitting next to him, who I'm assuming is a working girl.
0: Bob says that the judge had a bit too much to drink that night. So Bob and this, quote, working girl, help the judge back to his room. Afterwards, this woman goes back to Bob's room with him. Once there, she suggests that they take a shower before, you know.
5: So, anyway, I get naked, I go in there, she's naked. When I go in there, I get in the shower, she doesn't get in the shower. Okay, I'm in there no more than three or four minutes, and now it hits me. I got about, I don't know how much, five, six, seven thousand in cash in my pocket. I had just gotten a big fancy diamond ring not that long before. Suddenly, I jump out of the shower. By the time I get out, she's already out the door. Because I open the door and I see her towards the elevator. And I'm naked. And, and I'm running. The moment I come out and she's gone, I know damn well what happened. And I open the door and I see her. And as I say, I'm naked, but I go running after her. She gets in the elevator and down she goes.
0: Wait, seriously, Bob, honestly, you were running naked down the hallway?
5: What, what did I just say?
0: Bob frantically hits the down button hot pursuit a new elevator arrives bob rushes in
5: i get in there there's an old couple old couple standing in there like i said it's about six in the morning now i just put my hands over my my schmuck and i i don't say a word the woman especially like is you know if she if she could have pushed her way out the back of the elevator going down she would have
0: Wait, Hold up just to be just to be totally clear here Bob. you're buck naked in the elevator covering your private ports and there's an elderly couple cornered over the there at the far end of the elevator?
5: No but the elevator wasn't that big. We're talking a small elevator, probably about three feet behind me And so I turned my back and you know but I'm covering I'm covering my schmuck. but now I have to get out of there and, and we're at the ground level. So I run over to the pole and I grab a towel and I go see the security. And I said, I just got robbed. I didn't know, but I assumed I got robbed or she wouldn't have been, you know, gone. All my life, I've been able to instantaneously, you know, figure things that are happening. That's been my nature.
0: Well, maybe not instantaneously. I mean, she did get away. But you got to give Bob an A for effort. Eventually, Bob says he checks in with the judge.
5: In the morning, I see Frank, and Frank is complaining, you know, he, he had like eight, nine hundred bucks in his pocket, and she robbed him. He said, why'd you let her do that? Yeah. You know, what? He said, why did you let her? He's blaming me for him getting robbed. But I said, she got me for a lot more than she got you.
0: The whole thing was like a scene right out of The Hangover. It was a classic what-happens-in-Vegas-stays-in-Vegas moment. Bob says that he did all this simply because he liked to have fun, and he valued Frank Wilson as a friend. But all of this male bonding served another purpose. It built trust, something that Bob might use to his own advantage if he ever wanted to, which is why in early 1977, When Bob was asked to fix a high-profile murder case, Bob thought of Judge Frank Wilson. Bob says he just knew this would be the judge to ask, the man to take the bribe. And if it worked, if Bob could pull this off, he'd prove his worth to Pat Marcy and the mob. He'd be the man in Chicago. I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, Mobland, Episode 3, The Fix. Bob's relationship with Judge Wilson, it was complicated. And all we have is Bob's version of what it was like, which should be taken with a grain of salt, because look, in Bob's stories, Bob tends to be the hero. With this in mind, I did some digging and tried to figure out exactly who Judge Wilson was. People who knew the judge well remember him as a no-nonsense Irish guy, a World War II vet who walked with a limp, and had a reputation for being tough on the bench. A serious man.
3: So he walked with a limp. He was crabby, and he was very state-minded.
0: That's Bill Murphy. He worked as a public defender in Frank Wilson's courtroom. He also happened to go to college with Bob, so he actually knew both men pretty well. He says that in college, Bob
3: was a wild man. I, I mean, I like Bob. He was a good wrestler when he was at college. He was a... He was good in a fist fight, you know I mean he, he just was out of control
0: by contrast, Judge Wilson, or Frank, as he calls him, was a play by the rules kind of guy.
3: Lawyers would you know come in to say hello to Frank you know it, it was pretty congenial if there were certain lawyers that would come into his chambers, uh, he would signal signal me to come in there too, being uh a witness that no hanky pinky was going to go in. Does that make sense to you? This
0: made perfect sense to me. This was a city and a courthouse plagued by corruption, and Judge Wilson was taking precautions, protecting himself, and making it clear that he was operating above board. Murphy says one time a lawyer tried to send Judge Wilson a referral fee. Apparently, the judge had sent a client his way, and the lawyer wanted to show his thanks. Wilson flat out refused. Apparently, this lawyer was still determined to show his gratitude. So he sent a case of scotch to Judge Wilson's bailiff. You know, the guy in the courtroom who says, All rise. Judge Wilson put the kibosh on this too. He insisted that the bailiff return the case of scotch. In fact, he asked Bill Murphy to help move the liquor because apparently the bailiff was an older guy and had a disability.
3: Frank said, to, to me. said, so we're not taking, I'm not letting my bailiff take that. He can't carry it back to the lawyer's car. Would you do it? And I did.
0: Murphy was also now a witness, someone who saw the judge had done the right thing and saw that the judge didn't want even a whiff of impropriety in his courtroom. Bill Murphy told me that's just who Frank Wilson was, an honest man.
6: I didn't really have you know, illusions about him. He was a very tough father, you know. He wasn't um, telling me I was great all the time. It was kind of just the opposite. But in spite of all that, I really admired him.
0: That's Frank's daughter, Marianne Duncan.
6: I don't know, he just really loved the law. He watched Perry Mason, like every single Perry Mason about 100 times. And when he became a judge, I don't think I've ever seen anyone happier in a job.
0: Marianne says that her dad made a comfortable living as a judge. The family always had enough money. Because her dad was frugal, a no-frills kind of guy. Like when they went on vacation.
6: We would stay at like a Howard Johnson's, but then we would go have a drink or something at like the fancy hotel. But we'd be back at the, you know, more average place. so anyway, it was never extravagant.
0: She says that her father wasn't driven by money and would never take a bribe. Now you might be thinking, of course, isn't this what any daughter would say? But Marianne was adamant.
6: If I thought my father did anything wrong, I, I would admit it. You know, because it wouldn't be something I did. You know, it wouldn't be my fault if he did something wrong.
0: Marianne also disputes that her dad and Bob Cooley were even friends. And in a way, I can see why she says this. They seem kind of like opposites. But I can also see how Judge Wilson's honorable reputation would be attractive and quite useful to a guy like Bob Cooley, especially if he wanted to fix a murder case and make it all look perfectly legit. Bob says that he also chose Judge Wilson in part because he drank too much, and this was essentially his Achilles' heel. When I asked Marianne about this, she said her dad did have a drinking problem. He would drink to excess for a few weeks, then stop and go dry for a spell. The bottom line for Bob was he felt if he talked to the judge in just the right way, at just the right moment, the judge might agree to the bribe.
5: I had no idea how I was gonna approach him until I walked up before him. I had no idea what I was gonna say. I didn't like prepare something.
0: He was just gonna wing it. So here's what Bob says happened. He had this restaurant, Greco's, and he knew that the judge liked to dine there. So Bob heads to Greco's one night, hoping to bump into the judge. Just so you can picture it, Greco's was a huge place. Look like a wine cellar adorned with ornamental trellises and vines. Good home-cooked food prepared by Italian ladies from the neighborhood. Anyway, Bob shows up and spots the judge sitting with some friends. He gets the judge's attention and brings him over to a secluded spot. Then, ever so casually, Bob says,
5: Judge, somebody contacted me and wants me to, to handle a case.
0: That was the word Bob always used in situations like this handle a case.
5: If he would have said to me, anything to the effect, that uh, I don't want to talk to you about it or whatever, you know, so be it, end the conversation. But he said something that really struck me as bizarre.
0: He said to Bob, you mean the Harry Alamon case? Bob was taken aback. It was as if the judge knew what Bob was going to ask before he even asked it. The judge then told Bob,
5: They SOJ'd me on that case.
0: S-O-J. That stands for Substitution of Judge. In Illinois, if a case is assigned to a judge and, for whatever reason, either side doesn't like that judge, they have a chance to veto him, ask for another judge. So that's what Wilson was saying to Bob. He'd been SOJ'd, blocked on this case. Turns out, Harry Alaman's legal team had vetoed Wilson. And they'd done this almost certainly because of Wilson's tough reputation. This was news to Bob. But Bob had a hunch that, with the mob's help, they could pull some strings and undo this, get the case in front of Wilson. In other words, a problem that could be solved. Bob just plays it cool. He doesn't say anything right away. Instead, he waits. A few nights later, according to Bob, he bumps into the judge again, and brings up the whole matter once more. Tells the judge what a weak case he thinks this is. And makes his pitch.
5: If I can get the case to you, you know, will you take it? Not saying to fix it or anything else. And he said to me, you can't do it. And I said, well, I think we can.
0: Notice how careful Bob is being. He's poking around, looking for a soft spot, testing whether the judge would even consider this. And Bob says the judge isn't giving him a hard no, more like a maybe, which is all he needs. Now comes the full charm offensive. He invites the judge to dinner at his restaurant. Bob's laid out all the groundwork. Now, it's just a matter of locking him in.
5: About maybe about halfway through dinner, the judge went to the bathroom. That's when I thought I will approach him.
0: This would be the moment he may be thinking, really? In the bathroom? But as you'll come to see, this was Bob's go-to place to have discreet conversations. Anyway, Bob says, they get to the bathroom, and Bob slips his hand into his pocket and clutches a wad of cash, $2,500.
5: I just took it out, and I put my hand out, and he, and he put his hand out, and he took it. And he said, what's this for? And I said... Judge, you know, that's for you. I said, if I can't get the case to you, so be it, and I walked out.
0: It was a shrewd play. Bob knew perfectly well that once the judge accepted the money, it was a done deal. He was corrupted. So for the time being, the judge appeared to be on board. Bob had promised him that he'd get him 10,000 total once he'd acquitted Harry Alamon. So that was one problem solved. Not long after this, Bob got a call from a mobster he knew. He asked Bob to meet at a motel out by the airport. When Bob arrives, they head upstairs to an empty room. A few minutes later, there's a knock on the door. And in walks Harry Elamon.
5: Harry had stone-cold eyes. He just did. He reminded me a lot of Pat Marcy. Pat Marcy was the same way, but Harry looked pure evil.
0: Apparently, there was no mistaking who or what this guy was.
5: He looks like what he was. He looks like a mob hit guy. Short, uh, in pretty good shape physically. Always wore a suit. Never saw Harry without him in a suit. I wonder if he went swimming in a fucking suit.
0: Technically, Bob wasn't representing Harry. Harry had a veteran trial lawyer who would be arguing the case in the courtroom. Bob was just the fixer. But apparently, Harry wanted to talk with Bob directly about Judge Wilson. According to Bob, Harry was worried. Worried about the judge's tough reputation. And you can understand why Harry might also be a little confused. First, his legal team had blocked this judge. Now, they were wrangling to get into his courtroom, which was kind of weird. And apparently, Harry wanted to make sure that everything was under control.
5: And I said, look, I said, yes, I said I would handle the case. And that's when he said, if there's a problem, you're going to have a problem.
0: What does he mean by that? If there's a problem, you're going to have a problem. Like, what does that actually mean?
5: It means that you're probably going to get killed, is what I assume it means.
0: Even so, Bob says he didn't worry. Everything was going as planned. And the case did end up in front of Wilson. It wasn't until the trial began that Bob started
2: to panic.
7: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co.
2: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When
4: you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800 333 kia for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.
0: By the time that Harry Alaman went on trial for murder, it was already a full-blown media spectacle. Harry showed up in court dressed to the nines with all the panache of a celebrity. He even looked a bit like a young Al Pacino, sporting a series of silk ties and perfectly tailored suits. The way the media described him, it was like the Grim Reaper had gone shopping at Barney's. Right off the bat, Harry's defense team tells the judge that they're giving up their right to a trial by jury. Now, some defendants like juries, see them as more sympathetic, which makes sense, unless of course, you've bribed the judge. Then you want a bench trial because in a bench trial, well, it's all up to the judge. With that matter settled, the trial begins. The first witness to be called to the stand was from the family of the victim, Billy Logan, his sister. You know her as Aunt Betty. The famous Chicago columnist Mike Royko captured the scene. He described Harry's reaction as the Logan sisters testified about the death of their brother. He wrote, quote, Harry just sat there looking as cool and impassive as he has throughout. If being unjustly accused is a nightmarish experience, he's holding up about as well as anyone could. Turns out, this cool and impassive appearance, it was very deliberate on Harry's part. It was a whole way of being, and Harry's family had to follow it. Frankie Forliano, his daughter, remembers this well.
6: It's what he taught us. If they, I don't care what they say to me, I don't care what they do to me, you are to show no emotion. Get up and walk away from these reporters. Don't give anybody any satisfaction."
0: Okay, let's talk about motive. This was a hole in the prosecution's case, which they never really addressed in a satisfying way. There were reports in the press that Billy Logan may have been murdered because he refused to help the mob in a hijacking scheme. Now, if you recall, Billy was a teamster. In theory, he had access to all kinds of information about trucks, when they arrived, when they departed, what they were carrying. The mob apparently wanted this info. Billy said no. And, well, he ended up dead because of it. That was one theory, anyway. I say theory because Billy was dead, so he couldn't talk. And the mob, well, didn't exactly have a PR guy to comment. So theory was all there was. Without a clear-cut motive, the heart of the prosecution's case was the testimony of not one, but two witnesses to the crime. The first was Harry Alamond's accomplice, the driver of the getaway car, Louis Almeida, a childhood friend of Harry's. Louis' testimony... Pretty damning. Louis recalled the night of the murder, how they'd driven over to Billy's house, how Harry had yelled out the car window to get Billy's attention, and then shot him twice. He said five or six seconds passed, and then Harry shot Billy a third and final time. Louis said he started to speed away, but Harry told him, quote, drive slow. He's gone. It was a chilling account of a professional murder. The problem with Louis as a witness is that he was serving a 10-year federal sentence on a weapons charge. He was testifying, at least in part, to get his sentence reduced. In the end, the whole trial really came down to the second witness, Robert Lowe. This is the guy who told Betty, I saw it all the guy who'd been out walking his dog when Billy Logan got shot, a guy who had absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose by testifying.
8: And, you know, it's the 70s. Uh, He was a young guy, very impressionable, and I think that did carry the day.
0: That's Maurice Posley. He's a former Chicago journalist who wrote a book about Robert Lowe and this trial. It's called Everybody Pays.
8: It really boiled down to Bob Lowe and whether you believed Bob Lowe. And he was very believable.
0: Basically, Posley says that Robert Lowe was the star of the show. Everyone knew it from the moment Robert Lowe entered the courthouse. Because he was surrounded by guards, all with their guns drawn. It was like the president had arrived or something. And in a way, it was no less momentous. Here was a regular guy, father of four, working stiff, don't forget, dog owner, who'd volunteered to take on the mob. And thus far, he had not been killed. That was like being in downtown Chicago and seeing Bigfoot with a red Sox hat on. Maurice Posley, he points out, this didn't just happen. Robert Lowe didn't just wake up one morning, make a cup of folgers, look in the mirror, and say, You know what? I think I'm gonna testify against that really scary hitman today. No. The prosecutors told Robert basically that he had a chance to do the impossible, put a mob
8: hitman behind bars for murder.
0: They laid it on thick.
8: This was an opportunity that rarely came along for men such as them to actually get a conviction in these cases and that this guy was the linchpin. And so he became sort of, you know, their darling, you might say. We'll take care of you. We'll give you a new identity. You're going to have to change your life. You're going to have to move. But... It's, it's going to be an opportunity for you. And they impressed upon him his value to them, which was sort of not just a personal value, but it was a value to society at, at large of what he was doing as a public service.
0: But that's not all. In his book, Posley recounts a scene where Robert is told by prosecutors that he might be in danger. The subtext was clear. Sign up with us, do your part, and you'll be safe. Do this for the good of your wife and your kids. So, yeah, just a little bit of pressure. At the courthouse, he took the witness stand and began to recount what he'd seen that night. He'd been taking his dog for a walk when he saw Billy Logan come out of his house. Robert began to cross the street so he could chat with Billy. Then a car pulled up. Robert testified that he heard a bang. Then he saw Logan's body fly back about four or five feet into some bushes. He then heard another bang. Moments later, the car door opened and an armed man emerged. Robert said his dog, Ginger, lunged at the man. He had to hold Ginger back. Then he made eye contact with the killer for four full seconds. Then came the most dramatic moment in the whole trial. The prosecutor said, Mr. Lowe, I'd like you to look around the courtroom and see if you can see that man in court today. That's when Robert raises his hand and points directly at Harry. The prosecutor then says, Let the record indicate that the witness has identified the defendant, Harry Alaman." Robert's wife, who was seated on a front row bench, heaved an audible sigh of relief. It was as if, after all of these weeks and months and years of living with this nightmare, maybe, just maybe, it was finally over. During the cross-examination, the defense did its best to poke holes in Robert's credibility and his testimony. They focused on inconsistencies in what he told the authorities, mainly small details, like whether or not the getaway car had bucket seats. They said, in effect, his story at trial didn't match up exactly with what he'd told investigators previously. The defense attorney pressed on relentlessly. He questioned Robert's memory, hammering away in particular at the idea that he'd stared at the killer for a full four seconds. I'm going to read you a portion of his cross-examination. Defense. How was this man dressed that you stared at for four seconds? Robert. I was looking at his face. Defense. Well, it was a brightly lighted area. It was bright enough to see good, wasn't it, Mr. Witness? Robert. Yes, sir. Defense. And you can't tell the court what the man was wearing? Robert. I wasn't looking at anything but his face. Defense. Was he wearing a sweater? Robert. I didn't notice. Defense. Defense. Was he wearing a coat? Robert, I don't know, sir. Defense, was he wearing a windbreaker? Robert, I don't know, sir. Defense, you want the court to believe that you stared at a man for four seconds and you can't tell him one thing as to his apparel? Prosecutor, objection, Judge. Judge, overruled. Robert, all I had my mind on was his face. I'll never forget that face as long as I live. The good news for Robert was that most of his testimony was corroborated by other witnesses. His account matched up with what Louis Almeida, the accomplice, had described. It also matched up with what Aunt Betty had said. At some point, there was a brief recess, and there was this moment captured by a local reporter. One of the victim's sisters approached Robert Lowe's wife, grabbed her hand, then told her tearfully, What your husband's doing, it can't bring Billy back. But maybe it'll stop them from doing this to anybody else. The scene made the papers. It seemed to capture the human drama that was unfolding here. A reunion of neighbors. Once upon a time, they waved friendly hellos across the street. And now, one family was risking everything so that the other might have a shot at justice. It was the kind of story that could make people care. See, this is just not another mob murder, but a parable about courage and family And community. The newspapers covered each day's proceedings ravenously. It was a media circus. And at the center of this was Judge Frank Wilson. His daughter, Marianne, told me that the press camped out on their front lawn, that they hounded her father with questions, and her too. It was relentless. Everyone was angling for a clue. How would the judge rule?
1: JP Morgan Chase Bank NA member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Company.
7: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now.
0: To the local media in Chicago, the trial of Harry Aleman was the gift that kept on giving. Every day offered new storylines that enticed readers and sold papers.
4: I was still living with my mother. And I was commuting on the train because I was on the south side. And so every day I was reading the paper on the train. And there was this trial going on day after day.
0: This is Catherine Fleming, one of the many women who worked for Bob over the years. At the time of the trial, she was his trusted secretary. And, well, I'll just let her explain their relationship.
4: You know, he was nice. We liked each other. We worked together easily. There was an attraction. So, yeah, it was easy. It was easy. It was easy. It was fun.
0: Catherine dated Bob on and off for about 20 years in what was largely a commitment-free relationship. They were very close, but she says she didn't know the ins and outs of how Bob operated.
4: Yeah, I, I really didn't know what he was doing. I was not part of any client meetings ever, so I had no sense of what he was or wasn't doing other than, you know, getting criminals off.
0: For instance, even though she was reading about the Harry Alamon trial every day on her way to work, she had no idea that Bob was involved in this case. He never let it slip. Not at work, not in bed, not ever. Bob kept all of his dealings in this case very hush-hush. The best thing he could do, in fact, was stay away from everyone involved. So he says he wasn't thrilled when, during the thick of the trial... He got a call from Judge Wilson himself. I get a phone call from the judge. He called me from a payphone
5: over there by by Twenty Sixth Street. He calls and he says, "You know, can I meet?" He
0: wanted to meet me at the at a restaurant over on Cicero. According to Bob, he shows up at the restaurant, sees the judge, and together they head off to, yep, you guessed it, the bathroom.
5: And he's like, he's like shaking. He's like all nervous. What's 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 matter? And I said, Judge, you know, look, you know, what can can I tell you? Now I am nervous, you know, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I said, well, Judge, hey, you know, what can I tell you? If something goes wrong, I said, I've got a problem. And I had no idea what he would do now myself because he might find him guilty. I mean, that's what's making me nervous because it sounds like maybe he's going to say, forget about it. I I don't know what he's going to do, Jake. I don't know what you're going to do tomorrow. I don't know what he's gonna do. What would happen if he found him guilty?
0: Well, I'd probably wind up getting killed. Bob was a bit shaken, but he did his best to calm the judge down, assure him that everything would be all right. And it turns out Bob did have an idea how he might fix things or make them better. He says that at one point the judge had complained about how much money he was being paid. So Bob decided to go back to Pat Marcy and see if they could up the bribe, offer more than just the 10,000. So Bob paid a visit to Counselors Row and found Pat Marcy, the mob's political czar, the guy with the tinted glasses.
5: We walked out into the hall and I said, he's a nervous wreck. Well, he better do it. I said, should we offer him some more? Should we offer him some more? And he says, He said he'd do it for 10. It better be done for 10. That's all. Not a nickel more than rotten SOB.
0: And that was it. There was nothing more that Bob could do. The trial drew to a close in late May of 1977. Bob, by his own admission, was a nervous wreck. So the night before the verdict was announced, Bob did... Well, what Bob always liked to do. He hit the town. Kind of like a last hurrah.
5: I went to my restaurant. I went to the nightclubs, a couple of nightclubs. I was out until about maybe about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. I I went home with one of my sweethearts. When we got up in the morning, I packed a couple of bags. That's when I said, well, just in case there's a problem, I'm getting the hell out of here.
0: Bob says the next morning, He got on the highway and headed west. Had no idea where he was going, just away from Chicago. Because he knew if the verdict was guilty, he'd be on the hook. Pat Marcy would hold him accountable. Meanwhile, back in Chicago, it was standing room only in the courtroom. It seemed like the whole city was hanging on the outcome. What would Judge Wilson do? Did he have enough reasonable doubt to acquit? or would he send a hitman to jail for murder for the first time in as long as anyone could remember? The judge began his statement by issuing a stern warning. He said, quote, "'All right, ladies and gentlemen, "'it's now time for the finding by this court. "'When I announce my decision, "'I will not tolerate any outbursts "'by anybody in this courtroom.'" He then explained that in his tenure as a judge, he had presided in over a 1,000 cases, some tough, some easy, He'd even sentenced two men to the electric chair. Although this case has created a certain amount of public interest, it is not a particularly difficult one, he told the courtroom. It all came down to the credibility of the two eyewitnesses, he explained. The judge said he was required by law to view the accomplice's testimony with suspicion because he was an accessory to the murder. The judge gave more credence to the testimony of Robert Lowe, but... He wasn't entirely won over by it either. He pointed out some discrepancies between what Robert said on the stand and what he told investigators prior to that. The judge went on to say, quote, my job here is not to say whether the defendant is innocent and I do not say at this time that he is innocent. That is between him and his God. That's the moment that made it into all the papers The moment when everyone seemed to understand where exactly this was headed. Johanna Centinello, the niece of the victim, remembers this moment vividly.
6: Because I remember my mom squeezing my hand and she started to cry. And she said, how could this be? How could it be that he's saying this is between him and his God? I think everybody was just stunned, and it wasn't making any sense.
0: The judge continued, My decision may not be a popular one, but for those who disagree, I wish to state that every defendant, and I mean every defendant, no matter who he might be, is entitled to a fair trial. With all of this in mind, the judge concluded, I find the state has fallen far short of their burden of proving the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. There was an uproar. For Harry's daughter, Frankie, there was no immediate joy or even relief. It was just like,
2: I don't even know, I was just numb.
4: I was just numb. My mom was next to me and just standing there, and my mom's like, it's okay. It's going to be okay.
0: Harry eventually made his way out of the courtroom, walked away, a free man, All the while, the news cameraman clicked away. It was an iconic moment. Here's Maurice Posley, the journalist.
8: The image of Harry walking out of the courthouse with his wife and attorney with a sort of smirk, self-satisfied smirk on his face that gave you the impression of, see, I could have told you that this was going to happen.
0: Meanwhile, Miles away, in his car heading west, Bob Cooley was listening to the news.
5: (laughs) I heard on the radio, you know, the judge found him not guilty. You know, everybody's screaming because the evidence was overwhelming and all the rest of that bullshit. I turned the car around.
0: Turned his car around because he'd done it. He'd gotten the verdict that he'd wanted. He'd come through for Harry Alamon, and more importantly, for Pat Marcy, the mob's political czar. Bob had taken a huge risk. Even for a veteran gambler like Bob, this was an epic roll of the dice. As the city of Chicago came back into view, and the recently completed Sears Tower loomed in the distance, it must have seemed like this city was his for the taking. But, first, there was something he had to do. He says he had to pay off Judge Wilson. Pay off the balance of what he owed, because he'd only given him 2500 so far. They arranged to meet at a restaurant. On this final meeting between the two of them, Bob says he decided to bring along his secretary-slash-lover, Catherine Fleming. He said he did it to lighten the mood, though he didn't tell Catherine why they were meeting up with the judge, or even who he was. When they arrived at the restaurant, they spotted the judge. Bob says he looked terrible, like he'd aged 15 years in the last two weeks. Catherine had a similar memory.
4: He looked old, alcoholic, thin, drawn, sad, unhappy.
0: They quickly parted ways with Catherine and looked for a place to talk.
5: We walk into the bathroom and he turns around. He said, you, you've destroyed me.
0: According to Bob, the judge told him that he was going to be crucified in the newspapers for this decision, that his days as a judge were effectively over. He told Bob, you did this to me. At some point, Bob says he handed him an envelope with the money, but he didn't know what to say to the judge. Not really. I mean, what was there to say? Even smooth-talking Bob coolly Was at a loss for words? And before he could figure it out, the judge just turned around and walked out the door. After leaving the bathroom, the judge sat down next to Catherine. And he said something to her that she still remembers very clearly, even now, almost 45 years later.
4: The judge looked at me and he said, you look like a nice girl. Stay away from him. He's bad. It was a very pointed remark.
0: What do you make of that when he says it to you?
4: that he was having a problem with Bob. I just looked him in the eye and let him know that I was listening to him. That's it. That's all you can do.
0: Bob soon emerged from the bathroom. He glanced over, saw the judge with Catherine, but he couldn't bring himself to join them. He says he didn't want to be there. And so he walked past their table and just kept going. Time on Deep Cover.
5: I said, if anybody thinks for one second I'm going to even take a beating, they're thinking wrong. I said, and if I think I got a problem with you, I said, you're going to have the fucking problem.
0: cover is produced by Jacob Smith and Amy Gaines, and edited by Karen Chikurji. Our senior editor is Jen Guerra. Original music and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra, and Fawn Williams is our engineer. Our art this season was drawn by Cheryl Cook and designed by Sean Carney. Mia Lobel is our executive producer. Special thanks to Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Maya Koenig, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Mary Beth Smith... Brant Haynes, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Megan Larson, Royston Beserve, Lucy Sullivan, Edith Russello, Riley Sullivan, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Jake Halpern. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can binge the rest of the season right now, ads free. Find Pushkin Plus on the Deep Cover show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio
4: app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.